This is a Fuente podcast. The other issue is on female genital mutilation and cutting. The Detroit case that actually, um, where the government, federal government lost the case um, because the law was 20 years old and et cetera, et cetera. I'd like to know, uh, will you be able to make a statement against FGM? Because that's a, an issue um, in Detroit. It would be really powerful f if the two Muslim congresswomen, yourself and Rashida, would make a statement on this issue. Your second question is an appalling question because I, I always feel like there are bills that we vote on, um, bills we sponsor, um, many statements we put out, and then we're in, um, in a panel like this and the question is posed, could you and Rashida do this? And it's like, how often should I make a schedule? Like, does this need to be on repeat every five minutes? Should I be like, so today I forgot to condemn Al-Qaeda. Uh, so here's the Al-Qaeda one. Today I forgot to condemn FGM. So here it goes. <laughs> today I forgot to condemn Hamas. So here it goes. Today I forget. You know what I mean? I, I, it is um, a very frustrating question. It comes up. You can look at my record. I voted four bills um, doing exactly what you're uh, asking me to do. I have put out statements upon statements. There's a bill in, in Congress. There's a resolution that I am the co-author of that I voted out of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And so I am, I think, quite disgusted, really, to be honest, that as Muslim legislators, we are constantly being asked to waste our time uh, is speaking to um, issues that other people are not asked to speak to because the assumption exists is that we somehow support and are for, right? No, the, there is an assumption. So I want to make sure that the next time someone is in an audience and is looking at me and Rashida and Abdul and Sam, that they ask us the proper questions that they will probably ask any member of Congress or any legislator or any politician. One of the main themes I've been talking about with this in my podcast has been how there's this, this tension between being loving and truth. And I feel like this particular question is a great example of that. Because, yeah, if you see this without context... And you just see that question. You go, oh my gosh, that's so terrible to ask that question. What a horrible question to ask. But if you start digging deeper, it doesn't seem nearly as crazy. And I'm reading now from The Atlantic. It's an article entitled Ilhan Omar's Opportunity. And FGM there is referring to female genital mutilation. It was a brilliant political move. It's difficult to imagine anyone asking her about FGM anytime soon without being mindful of that moment. Excerpts from the exchange were widely posted by news outlets, including The Guardian and CNN. Several progressive publications sided with the congresswoman. Quote, Ilhan Omar is done responding to bigoted assumptions about her beliefs. End quote. Read a headline in the cut. The holder of this particular bigoted assumption, however, here's where the other shoe appears. This is who was asking the question. However, was not a closed-minded evangelical looking to demonize a culture she didn't understand. She was Ani Osman Zonneveld, the founder of Muslims for Progressive Values, looking for allyship 
from the two most powerful Muslim American women in government. Omar was aware of her identity because Zonneveld introduced herself before speaking. I always introduce myself, she told on the phone a few days after the event, because I don't look Muslim and I don't wear the hijab. Zonnefeld's organization promotes human rights throughout the Muslim world, including LGBTQ inclusion, gender equality, and diversity. She's been outspoken about cruel practices that, quote, have nothing to do with Islam, end quote, such as stoning and FGM, FGM's female genital mutilation. In the first part of her question, the part that didn't go viral, she asked Omar for an update on a bill she'd sponsored to sanction Brunei for imposing stoning as a penalty for homosexuality. That query produced not anger, but a plea for the audience to, quote, help advocate for it. This is partly what made the harshness of her response to the FGM question notable. She was willing to talk about stoning, but outraged to be asked about genital cutting. I asked Zonneveld why she thought Omar became so dismissive of her on the matter of FGM, and she sighed, quote, it probably has to do with being worried about anti-immigration attitudes, end quote. She said she understood this concern, but insisted nonetheless, we have to keep hyper-focused on this issue. We have to defend the human rights of the girls. Was it wrong to ask Omar to join the fight against FGM? Not when you consider that, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a disproportionate number of girls at risk of FGM in the United States live in Omar's 5th Congressional District in Minnesota, which includes the largest Somali diaspora in the United States. The article goes on to state that only 2% of women from Somalia avoid female genital mutilation. And so you see there's this tension here where you don't want to be bigoted and you don't want to ask you know, questions that are hateful. But is that really what this was? It's a progressive Muslim who's trying to fight for the rights of LGBTQ people. And Omar is in a district where this is the highest place this happens. Was it really wrong to ask this question? Um, and we need to always question it if someone says it's wrong to ask questions. That itself needs to be questioned. Um... All right, I'm going to play another clip from her speaking at an event. Um, I can't remember the name of the area where she was speaking, but it's that famous uh, speech where she said some people did some things or whatever, referring to 9-11, and conservatives got all angry about it. Actually, it's um, the speech has some great stuff in it. If you just watch the whole thing in context, you know, I didn't think it was that offensive, Honestly, but I did think it might have been ill-informed, and I'm going to question things about it. Um, And that's not going to make me bigoted. That's just, I've studied this religion, and so I have questions. And so we'll listen to her speech, and I'll do comments on it, and then I'm going to finish up this episode with um, uh, another Muslim. His name's uh, Daniel Hakikachu. Hakikachu? Yeah, his name's Daniel Hakikachu. That's a mouthful. And uh, he's a Muslim in California who studied Islamic law. And uh, we'll listen to him after we dissect Ilhan Omar's pieces from her speech. But what we know and what Islam teaches us and what I always say is that love trumps hate. 
Something interesting to point out here is that Love Trumps Hate is not a quote from the Quran, but it's actually a quote of a slogan from the Democratic Party. And as you're listening to her give the beliefs of Islam, I want you to keep in mind what primary sources she cites as she goes along. Ask yourself, how many surahs and ayahs does she cite? You know, what hadith is she citing? And she tells us what Islam believes. So when you know as a Muslim that advancing justice is very inherent in you, when you know as a Muslim our faith's initial foundations were built by a prophet who was vilified, had stones and fruit and all kind of things thrown at him, a prophet who had to make a pilgrimage and leave his home, then you know that when Ilhan is facing some controversy, that that is not something to be afraid of. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and finding our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. What I found so interesting about this is that she's talking about um, like discriminatory behavior toward Muslims, but she uses imagery of a promised land that they're heading toward. And this is funny to me because that's not something that's from Islam. That's something that's from Judaism. And <clears throat> it's the same imagery that's used by Martin Luther King and a bunch in the civil rights movement because they f saw themselves in an analogous story to the ancient Hebrews. Um, so they had been released from slavery. And so in the, in the story in the Bible, the, the Jews get enslaved in Egypt. They are liberated from slavery and they escape through the desert. And they're in the desert for a long time, but they're headed toward the promised land. And MLK saw his movement as being stuck in the desert, but they were on their way to the promised land. And so I just thought that it was interesting that Ilhan Omar uses that narrative to talk about um, Muslims coming out of segregation, even though that narrative is not what the life of Muhammad was like. So the truth is, you can go to school and be a good student. You can listen to your dad and mom and become a doctor. You can have that beautiful wedding that makes mom and dad happy. You can buy that beautiful house. But none of that stuff matters. If you one day show up to the hospital and your wife or maybe yourself is having a baby and you can't have the access that you need because someone doesn't recognize you as fully human. I thought this was kind of interesting because uh, and it very potentially it's just something I haven't heard of, but I haven't heard of anywhere where a Muslim isn't allowed to give birth at a hospital because the people there don't see them as fully human. That doesn't, I don't, I don't know if that's actually factual. Like if y'all are out there, do y'all know of anywhere, like anywhere within the United States where a Muslim isn't allowed to have a baby at a hospital because they aren't seen as fully human? I just thought that was like, huh, that was, I mean, maybe it's happened somewhere, but. It doesn't matter how good you are. If 
you one day find yourself in a school where other religions are talked about, but when Islam is mentioned, we are only talking about terrorists. And if you say something, you are sent to the principal's office. So to me, I say raise hell. Make people uncomfortable. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. Far too long, we have lived with the discomfort of being a second-class citizen. And frankly, I'm tired of it. And every single Muslim in this country should be tired of it. What's interesting here is all, all I can call, recall is my own experiences with Islam growing up in a school, you know, at the time period that 9-11 happened. All I ever heard about Islam was positive things, honestly. The, like you would hear negative things, pop culture from other students, but as far as curriculum and people teaching, whatever I did hear about Islam from teachers was always positive. And I think it's interesting here too, or it's it's important that we distinguish um, being treated as second-class citizens from people asking questions. Okay, being questioned, having people look at you weird and... Um, be judgmental of you just because you're wearing a hijab. Yeah, I'm I'm so against that. I don't think someone wearing a hijab should have to feel insecure in public. I think you should be able to put on a hijab and you just feel like any other American. But if you're in a conversation and you're talking about religion and someone asks you a question that cites one of the primary sources of your religion, um, you should have to be able to give an articulable defense of that. Um, and that goes for any religion, because a religion isn't a race. A religion is an idea system. It's a worldview. You know, with freedom of speech, you should be able to you should be able to cross examine a Nazi on their views, a communist on their views, a Christian on their views. We should be able to question each other. We need to be loving toward each other, but we can't ever get rid of this this idea of questioning. Um, that's how society progresses: is us questioning things. CARE was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. So you can't just say that today someone is looking at me strange, that I am going to try to make myself look pleasant. You have to say this person is looking at me strange. I am not comfortable with it. I am going to go talk to them and ask them why. Because that is a right you have. Here you see this tension happening again where we're having to choose between treating Muslims lovingly and then just saying some people did something. Like, do we really have to ignore that Osama bin Laden's beliefs were deeply grounded in, like, a a really nuanced and, and well-read understanding of Islam? Do we have to ignore that in order to be loving? Or can we acknowledge that he was firmly grounded in arguments from the Quran and the Hadith, but at the same time be loving to people? Are we able to do that? 
And I realize that's that's complex in in today's society. People don't like nuance and they don't like data, and they like to divide into tribes. But I'm saying the just because we're all tribal, that doesn't mean that's the right thing to do. We have to push against that. But the one thing that has always been very fascinating to me, and Hassan and I were talking about this before I came down here, is that there are always these folks who have ayahs prepared in their head. It's part of their talking points. And I don't think, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, a hafiz. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, uh, you know, um, chapter 4, 1, 3, 5 says in the Quran. Any Muslim in here know what that is? No? Okay. Hassan does. <laughs> That's, that's, that's expected, I suppose. But, but it, 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 it goes, right? They, they, they're always putting these ayah numbers. And I'm like, I, don't, I really don't know. Let me get back to you. I don't even know how to Google that yet. This is interesting because, you know, she swore in on a Quran. And she's talking about the importance of Islam. And she talks about, she's telling us what Islam believes. But she admits that she has very little knowledge. She says, I can't even Google an ayah. She says, you know, really? You don't know how to Google an ayah? You don't know how to Google a verse from your holy book? Um, and she kind of, using rhetoric, makes it seem like people who are critically thinking about ayahs and have knowledge of them, it's silly. Did you notice that? This is, this is the most disturbing part of the whole speech. Because she's, oh, yeah, some people think we actually need to know what we believe. Ha, 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 ha. But you realize that's just like a, a, a dance with words to try to dismiss a real problem. That's trying to guilt people out of thinking. Oh, you're one of those people. And she puts the people who quote ayahs and surahs in with these other people who are closed-minded and mean. So now they're all lumped together. And then, oh yeah, those people, it's silly. It's silly to know about ayahs and stuff. And y'all are real Muslims in this room. None of y'all know the ayahs either, right? Ha 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 ha. But, there was a woman, again, who we're not going to mention. And she was talking to Hassan outside. He went to go talk to her. Because Hassan is brief like that. And so... So in, in their conversation, she's, right, like saying all of these chapter numbers and ayah numbers, first numbers and chapter numbers. And I thought about it. I said, you know, we should, like, just kind of do that. I, I, I started a practice, um, and, I'm, and I'm hoping, you know, Muslims who are elected around the country would just do this. I, I tweet out verses of the Quran. I, I say, Assalamu alaikum, and all, you know, Alhamdulillah. I tweet back at people, Astaghfirullah. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to make sure that people are Googling these words. I never really put the definition there because I want them to get comfortable as they Google what, what they mean. So I, I was thinking that, you know, I should, I should think about maybe some ayahs that kind of explain why someone like me exists. And to me, it is really important because there is 
not enough conversation rooted in the fact that advocacy, fighting for justice, standing up for what is right is very inherently Islamic. So for those of you who want to Google this, this ayah, it's in chapter 4. 135. So there you can see there's kind of like this idea that knowledge of the Quran is funny there once again. <laughs> I guess I'll have to quote this one since, you know, critics are quoting these other ones. And I'll paraphrase it. This ayah says that as Muslims, we are called on, right, to stand up for justice and to speak the truth. Even if it is against ourselves, our parents, and our close relatives. I want you to compare now Ilhan Omar's knowledge of Islam and its primary sources with a, uh, a Muslim preacher named Daniel Hakikachu, who um, he, he's got a YouTube channel. He's got like 38,000 subscribers. So I want you to compare her story with his and see how Islam affected both of them. Yeah, so Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Salat, Alhamdulillah. So I uh, write online. I've been writing, lecturing, teaching online for over 10 years now. And uh, I have a website, MuslimSkeptic.com. I founded an institute dedicated to uh, growing Muslim faith in Islam and specifically addressing these kinds of objections that often come up in the modern world against Islam. And so we're going to talk about a lot of these issues today. And, um, oh, the institute's name is Alesna, Alesna, Alesna Institute. So uh, my background, I was born and raised in the United States. My parents are Iranian, and they're very secular. And I would say that maybe they have similar outlook as you uh, regarding Islam and the rationality of Islam and so forth. So that's uh, my background, a secular background. I always considered myself Muslim, but I would be considered non-practicing. Then I became uh, more practicing in high school due to the influence of friends. And then in college, I really um, started studying Islam more deeply. So I went to Harvard University. I did a double major in physics and philosophy. Then I went to Tufts University uh, to do a master's in philosophy. And uh, that's where Daniel Dennett, if you know, one of the four horsemen of new atheism, he's a professor there. Uh, interesting, no one in the faculty there likes him. <laughs> Insider information on Daniel Dennett. Listen carefully to this next part, and this is the part you really want to compare with Ilhan Omar. But um, in college, so I uh, started learning more and more about uh, Islam, and my initial understanding of these kinds of cliches about Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. Uh, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a feminist. Uh, Islam is about tolerance and so forth. All of these things um, started to come in conflict with what I was learning about Islam. The history of Islam, I was getting more into the prophetic biography, the history of the companions, uh, some of the more, uh, you know, advanced texts within uh, Islamic jurisprudence or fiqh. And I'm like, I don't, I really don't know. Let me get back to you. I don't even know how to Google that yet. 
So all of these things, I was recognizing that, wow, uh, Islam has things that deeply, deeply conflict with my understanding of what Islam was, and then things that conflict with the modern world and conflict with what was what I saw as common sense, right? The common sense of, uh, you know, that everyone had about human rights, women's rights. And I'm like, I don't, I really don't know. Tolerance, religious uh, freedom, freedom of speech, all these kinds of things. So there was a conflict between Islam on the one hand and then this modern common sense on the other. And they're mutually exclusive. I don't even know how to Google that yet. And, um, you know, fortunately, I was in a situation where I, in the philosophy department, I could explore, well, how do I resolve this conflict? Which one is right? Is it Islam or these modern uh, common And I found out after, you know, undergrad and then graduate school that actually what I thought was common sense was actually a very particular uh, philosophy, Western philosophy, originating within the 18th and 19th century. Uh, British, French, and some German thinkers, their very particular philosophy about morality in the world that had become the common sense of the modern world that I was suffering from that kind of bias and that kind of indoctrination. And I'm like, I don't, I really don't know. Let me get back to you. I don't even know how to Google that yet.